Exploring the Word is brought to you by Reclaiming America for Christ and the Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. This is Pastor Paul Blair. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word. Well, today we're going to be wrapping up a short series that we have done on some cultural issues and, quite frankly, some perversions to the purity of the gospel and some attacks on the foundation of the Republic of the United States that we've been studying over the past several days. We've been looking at the topic of critical race theory and also black liberation theology. Well, today we will wrap up this short study. So we hope that you enjoy part three of this most important look inside God's Word and comparing it and shining the light of truth into the darkness of many of the cultural issues that we face today. We welcome you to the radio ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We invite you to join with us for today's Exploring the Word. Here's Pastor Paul Blair. As a matter of fact, their grandchildren did inherit the promised land. Now, one more verse just that should, if you want to honestly study the Scripture and see what the Scripture says. By the way, I warned you ahead of time, this is not preaching this morning. This is Bible teaching. You basically had two Sunday school classes today, but some lessons are just designed to fall this way. If you want to close the door on this debate, we look at Ezekiel chapter 18. The Jews were whining, saying, oh, we're, we're suffering. Here we are in captivity in Babylon. It's not our fault. It's our grandfather's fault. It's our great-grandfather's fault. Their fault, not our fault. Uh-uh. God put a stop to that. He said this, and I'll just read. By the way, you ought to read this entire chapter because it deals with this topic particularly. But let me just reference these two verses. For as for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, he spoiled his brother by uh, deceit and, uh, and deceitful business practices and did that which is not good among his people. Lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. He's responsible for what he's done. Yet say ye, Why? Doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? Well, when the Son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, well, he shall surely live. The soul that sins, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him." There is no such thing, ladies and gentlemen, as group guilt or group innocence. I am not a Christian because my father was one. My father's influence greatly affected my becoming a Christian, but that decision and the consequence of that decision was solely mine. Likewise, if my great-great-grandfather was a cattle rustler, I am not guilty of his crimes. The soul that sins, it shall die. The one who does the crime is the one that does the time. Now, if I've wronged someone, then I am the one responsible, not my kids. If I have been wronged by someone, then my damages are recoverable. However... I am not responsible, and neither are you, for any actions done by members of those with my melanin level. 
150 years ago. And you who have not been wronged personally cannot claim damages. Like I said last week, you should go back and look at this. When they try to make this kind of division, you think about it. The psalmist said that God knew us when he put us together in our mother's womb. More so than that, Jeremiah said that before, God told Jeremiah, before I even began making you in your mother's womb, I had a job for you to do. So ladies and gentlemen, I had no control over being born in Edmond, Oklahoma in 1963. Why I was born in America and not in Asia, I have no idea. Why I was six foot five and not five foot six, I have no idea. Why was I born white and not black or Hispanic or Asian, I have no idea. Boy, I wonder who's responsible for making me. Oh, that would be God. I wonder who is responsible for planting me in Edmond, Oklahoma as a baby boy in 1963. Well, that too would be God. My responsibility is solely what shall I do with what God has entrusted me to do? What is my response to Jesus as Lord and Savior? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's individual responsibility, personal accountability. By the way, None of us can say it's not my fault. None of us can say I'm a victim. Two examples as we move on. Consider Daniel. 606 B.C. Jerusalem had been conquered by Babylon and subjugated. Daniel was a young man, probably around 13 or 14 years of age. Daniel had no political influence. It was not his actions that, that directed Judah. It wasn't his fault that Judah was being judged. Nevertheless, Daniel found himself taken captive some 900 miles away from his home and would never see his home again. Now, he was under Nebuchadnezzar's charge. He was trained in a different culture. He was vanquished by a superior military might. Daniel could have said, God, you are not fair. You don't know what you're doing. I don't deserve this. If this is how you're going to treat me, then I want nothing more to do with you. But he didn't. What did Daniel say? Daniel 1.8 says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not sin against God. Ladies and gentlemen, in spite of the circumstances he found himself, Daniel chose not to be a victim. And God used him mightily, even rising to the number one counselor and or advisor of, of the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar. Let me give you another example. Joseph. Joseph was the 11th of what would eventually be 12 brothers of Jacob. He was hated by his brothers because he was dad's favorite. And dad did a poor job of hiding it. The other brothers knew it. They were jealous of him. They hated him. They beat him up. They sold him into slavery. They lied to his dad. While enslaved, Joseph was doing the right thing and was falsely accused of a crime that he did not commit. He went to jail, spent some two years in a pit of a prison, all of this beyond his control when he had done nothing wrong. Joseph could have said, God, you're not fair. I'm a victim. It's not my fault. But instead, Joseph said, how can I sin against God? 
None of us are victims, ladies and gentlemen. I got to tell you, there are certain things, if I was rewriting my life, that I would like to have differently. I got to tell you, I was within an eyelash of a national championship and an eyelash of a world championship. Got neither. If I was rewriting things, I would have liked to have done that a little differently. If I was in control, I would have liked to have avoided those nasty knee surgeries early on in my career. I would have liked to have played about 15 years of pro football and made a gazillion dollars and bought an island and moved away from all of you forever. But you know who's in control? God is. And it's up to each and every one of us is how we are going to respond to the circumstances in which we find ourselves. We can either play the victim and say, woe is me, I've got cancer. Or say, woe is me, the debts are piling up. And quite frankly, that could be a reality. It was a reality with me with cancer two years ago. It was a reality with many of our folks with cancer. It's a reality that many of our church family probably has some bills piling up. We had a government shutdown for the first time in, in the United States history. And all of our businesses were closed. Well, folks, we can't change the circumstances we're in. However, we don't have to play the victim in the midst of those circumstances. Wherever we find ourselves, we can choose to glorify God in the midst of them. K. Carl Smith was one of our speakers in Grapevine, Texas. He wrote a book, and the title of it is Frederick Douglass Republican. Frederick Douglass was actually born, as K. Carl says, he wasn't in poverty. He wasn't even below the poverty level. He was a slave for the first 20 years of his life. He taught himself how to read and refused to be a victim. He escaped from slavery, refusing to be a victim. He became a preacher and a successful, respected businessman. He was so respected that as a black man in America in the 1860s and 1870s, he wound up becoming a counselor to five different Republican presidents and when he died, his estate had a current approximate net value of $11 million. Frederick Douglass didn't believe in victimization. He believed in opportunity. You know what his motto was? It was this. It says, get a job and do that job until you can get a better job. And do that job until you can start your own business. Pretty good, pretty good thought, isn't it? I'll tell you what, if there's one thing I hope that happens from all of this nonsense that we find ourselves in the middle of, I hope that we see a rebirth of small private business again. And let me tell you, folks, it's not by accident that you're seeing everything that's done from the top down, all the global leaders that are trying to take care of all of us through global government, that the Walmarts of the world and the Amazons of the world are flourishing and all the mom-and-pop shops are dying. When you understand Marxist strategy, you'll understand that that is all happening by design, but we're not talking about that today. Let me share this with you. You know why people are successful? 
According to the Brookings Institute in 2013, they did this study. They said, here is how you can guarantee that you'll be successful. Number one, at least finish high school. Number two, get a full-time job. Number three, get married before having children. And they suggested doing, getting married after the age of 21. When you follow those three steps, 98% escape poverty. And 75% wind up working to where they are considered in the middle class. But sadly, in this same survey seven years ago, more than 40% of American children, including more than 70% of black children and 50% of Hispanic children, are born outside of marriage. You know, I said a while ago that Christianity is very practical. It is. You know, the Bible has instruction for every area of our life. And as followers of Christ, we should be looking for God's instruction in every area of our life. But before I do a wedding, I have several weeks of counseling, and I give a lot of homework, and I work with the young couple. The first thing I do with the couple as I visit with them is I have them read the book, Total Money Makeover, and bring me a budget. Because you cannot live on love. Try going down to the city of Edmond to pay your electric bill. Just take your wife with you. Stand in front of them and say, I love my wife here. Let me give her a big old kiss. And they're going to look at you and say, we're still shutting off your electricity. <laughs> and you're going to find that love doesn't flourish in a dark, unair conditioned unheated house nearly as well as it did beforehand. Second thing I do is I require them. Now, I can't make them because I can't watch them. But obviously, God desired sexuality. He made us as sexual beings. It's supposed to be a gift held sacred within the boundaries of marriage. So I tell a couple, listen, I don't know anything about what you've been doing, but if you have been misbehaving, stop it. Rededicate yourselves to purity. And then when you get married, you will be able to give yourself to your spouse in holiness as God intended. By the way, the two major causes of divorce are either infidelity or economic issues. There's a reason we start there. But understand, this is very practical. If you do things the right way, you will get the right outcome. I'm going to share, I'm going to close with one story. And I'm dealing with this topic of, of, uh, of white privilege. See those two lovely ladies? That is, this is about a year ago at, uh, what was the little restaurant? Up, Cracker Barrel, Cracker Barrel. This is my mother, which mom will turn 97 next month. Now, we can't see her since the shutdown. She's over here at Teal Creek. This is my aunt. My aunt is 29. <laughs> but I want to tell you, brief, just real briefly as we close, about my, 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 my parents' story, our family's story. Uh, but to set the stage... I put a few slides in here, just a montage. If you've ever heard the term Great Depression, these are pictures from the Great Depression. Dust Bowl. Okay? You talk about poverty. You'll not see poverty anywhere in America today that rivals what that generation lived through for over 10 years. This picture here is actually my mom's family. 
This is probably 1933, I'd guess, 1932. This is my mother. This is my aunt, Lucy, who's now sitting on the back row back there. This is my Uncle Elba, who's now in heaven. And this is my Uncle Edwin, who was hit by a car when he was about the age of seven and killed. Mom and dad, uh, my mom's family made a living as itinerant farmers. They would drive to Texas to work the fields. They would drive to New Mexico to work the fields. They'd drive to California. They were, they were literally, they would just be nomads driving, looking for some place to work. And there would be, as I was looking at these slides of the Great Depression, there would literally be billboards by the Chamber of Commerce outside of a town saying, if you're looking for work, move on. You know, we don't have any jobs to offer here. You know, everything we've got here is just for our own hometown. Literally, it's that tough. They would drive from state to state. My mom actually picked cotton. So when that sports broadcaster for, for uh, uh, the, the Thunder a couple of years ago said, cotton picking, it's not a racist term. In fact, my dad said that all the time. It's just an expression. My mom actually picked cotton to help support her family as a four, five, six-year-old. She would start school late, but was so driven she would excel and actually skip some grades. 1941, December, America was attacked without a declaration of war by the Imperial Japanese Navy. We had over 3,000 soldiers, Americans, airmen, sailors, like killed that morning within just about two, three hours. Immediately following, my father, Bill Blair, enlisted in the Navy at 16. He lied to get in, but he was so passionate about defending America, he left his little bitty hometown, dirt roads in Cherry Valley, Arkansas, and enlisted in the United States Navy. He was actually serving in the South Pacific when the Navy discovered it, went and got him, brought him back home. Then as soon as he turned 17, he went back in the Navy, went back into service in the South Pacific. This was Pop, a little bit older here. You see a difference between 16 and maybe 20. Look at that mustache. See, you guys remember when I had a mustache? Big old six foot five Bill Blair. After World War II... My parents met at a church social in Fayetteville, Arkansas, Little Baptist Church, 1946. They got married. In fact, Dad escaped from the hospital to get married. He was on crutches, injured in the war, and uh, they got married. They had so much money that they had a White Castle hamburger that night, home of the Nickel Burgers, for their wedding, dinner. Moved to Oakmulgee, Oklahoma to go to OSU Oakmulgee, which was an extension of Oklahoma State University. Didn't have two nickels to rub together. Lived in what was called Veterans Village, where a lot of veterans coming back from the war went to school on the GI Bill. Mom talked about one time, dad had bought her a gift, a little pendant, And they had so little money that mom took it back down and traded it in so that instead of her getting the pendant, dad got a set of cufflinks because since he was starting to work 
Bev, you know this stuff. You lived it. Starting to work, it was more important for him to have cufflinks because he was trying to get into the professional world, and she was home caring for the child, Dave, little baby Dave, so she didn't need to have jewelry. By the way, come to find out, when you heard the old term Sunday dress, that was literal. They used to have a Sunday dress. They were so poor, they didn't have a variety. I can go to my closet. My wife has closets full of nothing to wear. Mom, mom literally had a Sunday dress. And that's the dress that she wore to church every Sunday. Went to the grocery store. She carried Dave or pushed a stroller because they didn't have a car. Dad walked to school at Oklahoma State University. Then after he graduated, worked for the university in their engineering department for a while, walking to the university in a suit because they could not afford a car. Dad started to work. They budgeted. Let me tell you, my mom could strangle George Washington on a dollar until he begged for mercy. She was the best at coupon clipping and S&H green stamp savings. They lived within a budget. By the way, there's an old Dave Ramsey quote says, If you budget, you tell your money where it's going. If you don't budget, you wonder where it went. <laughs> Everybody and every business should operate on a budget. But they worked hard. They had nothing. White privilege, my foot. They saved and they saved. Dad eventually got a job up here in Oklahoma City. They moved to Edmond. They rented a house until they could afford to build a house. And they saved and had more children. And they saved and paid their bills. We lived in a I did not realize that we were poor. I thought we were rich. And we were very comfortable. We grew up. Steve and I shared a bedroom. It's a wonder I'm not insane. Dave had his own room. Steve and I had one room. Mom and Dad had the, guest, had the master bedroom with a tiny little master bath. We grew up in 1,400, was it 1,400? Rankin Street? About 1,400 square feet of, of space. Three bedroom, two bath, 1,400 square foot house on Rankin Street. You know what? All my friends lived on the street. It was literally like the, the days in which we see these movies it was just that we'd get on our bikes and go outside and play until dark, and, and it was, it was, that was just life that we knew. And mom is still alive, I'll have you know. No estate has been passed on. I went to college on a football scholarship. When I got out, I, I got a job. I happened to work for three years for the Chicago Bears Football Club, Inc., then I went to work briefly for the Denver Cowboys football club, or the Denver Broncos, then for the Minnesota Vikings football club. Hey, it's a bear. You know what? You want to talk about hard job or job security, you try having a job where there's only, let's see, there's, there was less than 30 teams, and there's seven offensive linemen on our team. There's 210 jobs for offensive linemen in a country that has 280 million people. You want to talk about fighting for a job, fighting for survival. By the way, when I played, it wasn't making the millions of dollars. I think I got about eight bucks an hour back then. But I do have some metal knees to show for it. So. When they told me that I couldn't play football anymore, 
And I came back and started a business with my brother with nothing. But what we had our savings. We started building our business. We had a business that we ran together for 29 years. Unexpectedly, at some point in the midway through that, God opened the door to ministry. You all know I never wanted to be a pastor. But God called me into this particular job and equipped me with a particular skill set that's needed for this job. And I've now worked here for 20 years. Not inherited an estate. All we've done is worked and saved and worked and saved and paid our bills and tried to do things the right way. Let me tell you, the best thing that mom and dad gave to us were these two things. They gave us their faith. That's more important than anything. I saw the reality of mom and dad's Christianity. It wasn't something they just did on Sunday morning. It was real. And because of that, it caused me to investigate it deeply. And eventually, it became real to me. Next best thing they gave me was a good name. Now, that was helpful. When we, Dave and I, were starting our business, having the name Blair in Edmond was a good thing. Because people knew Bill Blair, that he was a man of honor, a man of character. And if we were his sons, they anticipated that we would be the same. But we're going to close with this as we've gone through this whole thing. Ladies and gentlemen, we understand life is hard. Who said it wasn't supposed to be? There are no guarantees in life other than our eternal destiny with Jesus as Lord. Matter of fact, the Bible says that as Christians in this era, we may face persecution. We may face tougher times because we're Christians. Scripture talks about that. Life is not easy. Working is not easy. Budging is not easy. Tithing is not easy. Paying bills are not easy. But we have choices. We can either do things God's way, which always work, or we can choose to do it some other way, which always leads to disaster. As we close, compare everything in light of the Bible. Compare everything to the light of Scripture. It's important that you understand what is being taught. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If you poison a person's mind, you can poison the person. What's Philippians tell us? Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are good report, these are the things we need to be putting into our mind. We thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word, and we look forward to being with you next time. Until then, may God bless you. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We hope that today's journey in God's Word has been a blessing to you. You can find more sermons and resources at our church's website, www.fairviewbaptistedmond.org or call 405-348-1745. Join us again each weekday for Exploring the Word from Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond.